Amen. Let's pray one more time before we begin. Well, Father, uh, we do come before you today with uh, hearts that are expectant and eager, Lord, to learn. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, grant us in great measure, Lord, the same grace that we're going to be reading about here in your word today. I pray that you would make us a generous people, make us a people that understand the biblical doctrine of giving, make us a people that understand the blessings that flow to your people because of their godly generosity. We pray, God, that altogether you would give us a spiritual perspective of money, something that is sorely lacking in the church today, and something that is sorely lacking because oftentimes it is sorely abused. And we pray that those abuses would be shattered here. We pray that those types of abuses would be completely done away with in our church. There wouldn't even be a hint of that. But that uh, all of the talk about money would be to your glory, for your glory, for your honor, for the good of your people, for the advancement of your kingdom, for the furtherance of your gospel, Lord, and that uh, none of it would be wasted, that it would all be significant uh, offerings of worship. We pray that you would give us a heart that would want to incorporate into our lives a full-orbed view of money in a, under Christian theology. We're not looking, Lord, for just a, Lord, just a financial plan. Lord, we don't want to have just a financial scheme in place. We want this to be worship unto your name and for your glory. So bless our time in your word today, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we read that passage of Scripture, and I'm going to be talking today about really the heart of the epistle. This is the heart of the letter. You say the heart of the letter is about money? Yes. The heart of the letter of 2 Corinthians is about this collection that the Apostle Paul was aiming to do. But if you would, and interestingly enough, chapters 1 through 7 are a huge interruption. It's actually a tragic interruption. Because chapters 1 through 7 is just one problem after another. Chapter 1 through 7 is all about the falling out that took place between Paul and the Corinthians. There was an individual in the church that had caused kind of like an anti-Pauline faction in the church, stirring people up against Paul and against his authority. And so therefore, he has to handle those types of things early on. And of course, we talk so much about what is known as the severe letter. There's a letter that went prior to 2 Corinthians to admonish the church on all of these issues. And thank goodness, according to the account that we have here, and the account that you see, for example, in chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 5, apparently that was made good. That, that letter took root. It accomplished the purpose for which Paul sent it out. And uh, now Paul and the Corinthians apparently have been reconciled. At least these particular issues have been handled and taken care of. And so now he can return to the main business of the letter. And the main business of the letter surrounds a problem. There are impoverished Christians in Jerusalem that are in desperate need of aid. 
Now, we don't know what led to the poverty of these uh, Jewish Christians, but for whatever reason, maybe persecution. You realize that it was in Jerusalem that Christianity was birthed. It was in Jerusalem that, that the day of Pentecost took place. And it was in, in Jerusalem where persecution of Christians began. And so who knows? Maybe the Jewish Christians were so oppressed in Jerusalem that they came under really hard times. Maybe many of them began to lose their jobs for being identified with Christ. Maybe many of them suffered persecution at their hands of their evil masters, the way that Peter points out in his epistle. Whatever is the case... There is, a, there is a problem in Jerusalem, and Paul seeks to bring them aid. But not only Paul, as we're going to find out, this is something wonderful. This is something that if you look with me at the book of Ephesians, just quickly, look back at the book of Ephesians. What we're looking at here in terms of the giving, this collection going all the way back to Jerusalem from these Macedonian and Achaean churches, the churches probably also of Asia, is that this is all resulting from the work of the gospel. And that's found in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about this very thing, that there is no longer Jew and Gentile. But he says that that enmity has been put aside. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, breaking down the barrier of the the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, and thus establishing peace. He's brought Jew and Gentile together. And now we're seeing this come full orb. This has this this come full circle now. Now you have Gentile Christians supporting Jewish Christians. you got Gentiles taking care of Jewish Christians. Really quite an amazing effect of the gospel. F.F. F. Bruce says that there has been no greater breach in human history than the division between Jew and Gentile. And this is what the Bible is talking about in terms of this dividing wall has been abolished. Only the gospel can make the two one. And so much so that the Gentiles express their unity and their love with their Jewish brethren that they open up their wallets to prove it. It's really transforming power of the gospel going on here. But I want to talk to you about what godly generosity looks like. And we'll take these chapters. You go back to 2 Corinthians. Chapters 8 and 9 are all about money. You know what the fascinating thing about money is? Is that money is mentioned in the Bible, if you just tally up all the verses, at least according to one expert, money is mentioned over 2,000 and, or 2,400 times. Oh, about 2,500 times in the Bible you're in a context of money. Isn't that amazing? You mean 2,000 times I'm going to open my Bible and we're talking about money? That's right. More than faith, more than the love of God, more than the kingdom of God, more than regeneration or justification or predestination or the sovereignty of God. The Bible talks about money. I was staggered. I was like, wow, why, why has my theology been focused on, it seems like every, everything but money. 
If the Bible teaches so much about it, and it teaches so much about it, brothers and sisters, because of the obvious reason. Because money is part of our lives. God knows that. I mean, think about it. You go to work and you spend 40, 50, some of you workaholics, 60, 70 hours a week. For what? To get money. He said, no, I do it unto the Lord, brother. Okay, sidestepping your super spirituality. <laughs> no, that's the right spirituality. But you know what I mean. On a pragmatic level, you're there because you need money. Because you've got bills. You have fun. God calls you to stewardship. And therefore, you cannot be without a job. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, if someone doesn't want to work, he doesn't what? Don't let them in the fellowship. Don't let them partake of the barbecue. Don't let them partake of the potluck. That's really shameful. That's because God doesn't want a bunch of losers in the church. Sorry to say. I'm sorry. No, you can't just veg out on your parents' couch and eat chips for the rest of your life. And play video games and watch the ball game. No, you got to move. God is an industrious God. God is a God of order. God is a God of activity. God wants hardworking people because his kingdom is built on the activity of God's people. And financial, uh, financial blessing is part of that. It's all part of that. Really, I think our perspective, this is a work that Satan has done on the church. As he so demented our perspective of money is that we go to work and we just drudge being there. We hate it. We're just, many of us are just grinding our teeth at work. I can attest to this. I remember working construction for several years, and I get to the job site at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, and before 7.30, before our first break, I've heard more profanity <laughs> in one or two hours at work than I'll hear probably for the rest of my life outside of work. And you just dread it sometimes, depending on your context and where you're at. You can either view going to work as a big waste of time, or you can view it spiritually, biblically, as this is God's ordained sphere to sanctify you in a particular way that you can't be sanctified in leisure, or on vacation, or even in ministry, maybe. But that He sanctifies you at the workplace for his glory and for your good, and to make you the kind of Christian that is productive, teaches you responsibility, teaches you that you got to get up in the morning. doesn't matter if you feel good, you don't feel good. doesn't matter if you're having a good day. It doesn't matter if your marriage is doing good that particular morning. you got to get up and you got to go clock in. Or all of a sudden, life begins to get harder. You get late on your payments. You miss a car payment. You miss a house payment. You got creditors calling you. You got collection agencies calling you. Your credit goes down the toilet. You can't purchase that house that you want five, ten years down the road. And all of it is a reflection of character. And that's why it's so important. That's why you can't play games with money. That's why you can't play games with finances. That's why you can't play games with your vocation. It's very important. And if God has not called you to full-time ministry, then, dear brothers and sisters, God has called you to give your all in the vocation in which you are at right now. He doesn't want you to live in another world. He wants you to be all there. He wants you to have a good testimony right where you're at. He wants you to have a good testimony among outsiders that they would see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. You can do that at the workplace in a unique way that 
perhaps I'm at a disadvantage. I can't do as much in the church because you're there. You're among them. You're with the unbeliever. You're with the heathen, the pagan. You're with the immoral of this world. And you're there to be a witness. And how you execute your employment is very, very crucial to how you will reflect the gospel. The gospel. So much that can and will be said about finances in these two chapters because it's a huge subject. I was tempted to do one of these lengthy, you know, John MacArthur introductions, which I did kind of, but I think he would have still had about 20 minutes left. But uh, we'll just let the text sort of guide us, okay? No, as a matter of fact, I did look up John MacArthur's studies on this. He did four introductory messages just before he gets to chapter 8. Lord bless him. Get away with that. We can benefit from that, right? And did a great job. But I want to talk to you about godly generosity. And the very first thing I want to show you is that godly generosity is an expression, or we could even say flows from the grace of God. Look at verse 1. Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So Paul sees what he's about to talk about in terms of their generosity as evidence of the grace of God flowing out of them. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a spiritual perspective. The fact that you are lavishing others with financial blessing and support is evidence that God's grace is powerfully at work in your life. It has produced a certain kind of Christian. It has so transformed the believers in the Macedonian churches, they've become a certain type of people. Generous people. Very generous. This is the grace of God that is lavishing them. They are recipients of this grace. God gave this grace, and Paul wants to make known this grace to them. This, this brings up two important issues here, okay? He says, I wish to make known to you. Do you have that in your Bible? If you have an ESV or if you have an NASV, both of those kind of convey the idea that what Paul is doing here is he's, he's wanting to make something known. But really, interestingly enough, in the original, in the Greek, it simply means I make it known. I make it known to you. That's what he says. He makes this known. He's going he's gonna to set this example in front of them. I love that because... It means two things. There needs to be a proper setting forth of this example and a proper appreciation of the example as well. What do I mean? Paul is not wanting to make these people jealous of the Macedonians. He's not setting these Macedonians' example to rub it in their face. Oh, look how spiritual they are and look how unspiritual you are. That's not what he's doing. If anything, he is wanting them to become zealous to imitate a good and godly example, which means what? The other side of the coin is this. You need to be mature in your ability to appreciate mature examples of faith. So, Paul expected that as he set these Macedonian churches before Corinth, that they would receive in the proper way of doing this. Now, Paul knows about these Macedonian churches. He's very familiar with them. And if you're wondering, who are the Macedonian churches? Well, you're looking at churches like Berea, right? The Bereans who were noble-minded in Acts chapter 17. Also, the Philippians. The Philippians are Macedonian churches. And the Thessalonians. Those in Thessalonica are also Macedonian churches. And these churches 
I mean, from all, you know, from what we could tell, were indeed that, generous. Look with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, just to kind of get a taste of one of these Macedonian churches. See, Paul was so familiar with their generosity, he, he, was, he was really acquainted with it. He was familiar with it. It wasn't strange to him. It wasn't, it wasn't like he had learned of their generosity. He had experienced it. Look what he says. He says in uh, Philippians 4.15, he says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at my first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Who knows, maybe in Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church was so poor, they couldn't even, they couldn't even support Paul at that moment, at that time. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. That's going to become crucial. That's going to become critical as we study this whole concept of Christian giving and Christian finances and Christian theology of money. The profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have, I have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And look at the way he describes their gifts. Fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Really? For me to cut a check, drop something in the box or the plate that comes along, God is either pleased or not pleased about that? That's right. God cares about giving. It is worship to God. It is an act of worship that will either please God or not please God because you can give in an unbiblical and an ungodly fashion. The second thing is this, that this generosity also transcended their circumstances. Look at verse 2. They were in a great ordeal of affliction. Their abundant, it says, in their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Okay, this is a church that is exemplary for several reasons. But one of these reasons is this, is that their giving was abnormal. It was, it was supernatural because it was unpredictable. It was not fitting. These people gave liberally generously. They gave, one, one commentator translated it, lavishly. They lavished the Jerusalem saints with their giving. But this is the point. It doesn't fit. They're not in a position to give. It says they are actually in a great ordeal of affliction. It says that they're actually in deep poverty. And that's the circumstance and that's the situation that this church finds itself in. So two things I want to point out here. Both their affliction and their poverty. What is this affliction that they're going through? He says, a great ordeal of affliction. Great ordeal of affliction. It probably is referring to persecution. And I say that because of the presence of persecution in all, it seems like, all of the different Macedonian churches. For example... Just one. Again, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says, 
For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he goes on to say, look, now you have the same conflict that you saw in me, which was his suffering for the gospel. Now let me give you another Macedonian church, Thessalonica. Chapter 1, verse 6 says this, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. He says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Maybe another text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Just to draw out, what was this ordeal of affliction that they were in? He says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. And then lastly, 2 Thessalonians 1.4 makes it clear. It says, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And in the middle of that, he speaks here of the overflow of their wealth, excuse me, overflowing in their wealth of their liberality. Why? And I, I, I submit to you it was because they maintained joy in the midst of it. Look at that. He says that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy overflowed. So they maintained their Christian joy even in the context of affliction, even in the context of persecution. And they didn't lose sight of the goal, of the prize. They didn't lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. And the second thing is this. They also transcended great poverty. So they had great affliction, they had a great trial, and they had great poverty. I mean, this is the big one, right? You don't give when you're poor. <laughs> you're supposed to be given to. When you're impoverished, which the word here that he uses, patakea, means beggarly. Isn't that, and it's kind of a humiliating position. They were in a humble state. They were in a position where they were beggars, if you would. They were in a beggarly state. They needed aid. They couldn't give aid, but they did. That's what's so super. That's why Paul sets this example before them, because it is so very unnatural, and it is so very uncommon today. Because let's face it, folks, we are selfish. Let's face it. We care more about what we have, our abundance. We want to make sure that our wealth flows to us first. And then, whatever's left over, we could talk about giving to others. That's not the way these Thessalonians and these Philippians and these Bereans thought. They thought because of their joy, they can give even when it hurt even when great sacrifice, it was going to cost them something. It was going to cost them something, but they did it anyway. It reminds me of what Jesus himself said, right? It is more blessed to give than to receive. 
Do you believe that? Do we believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? We love receiving things, right? As a pastor, I receive things all the time. I have kids coming up to me, giving me their drawings they drew for me, and the you know, ugly pictures of who I am, and you know, colored it in with all these funny colors. Sometimes I think they're right. That's about right. You know, I get bless. I get financial blessings from people. I've had people hand me checks for no reason. But do I believe that it is more blessed to give that check than to receive the check? It's it's not natural for us. We have to work at it because it doesn't come naturally. You know what comes naturally? Oh, really? Oh, great. Hey, sweetheart, look what happened today. But see, what should come naturally to us is if we follow their example, it should come naturally. Sweetheart, let's bless so-and-so, okay? Let's bless them. Can you imagine what that would do for them? You see, if you get greater joy out of this than that, then you'll start participating in something of what this text is talking about. Oh, these, these Macedonian churches gave in the midst of the fire of affliction and in the depths of poverty. He even uses that language. Deep poverty. Deep. It is baffling, profound, deep poverty. It's perplexing. You know what's amazing is that... Uh, that verse I read to you out of Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You have very similar statements found in ancient Greek in that exact literature. One uh, intertestamental writer uh, writes a very similar maxim in terms of giving money. But you know what's interesting? Is that none of it, none of it is Christian theology. In other words, none of it is rooted in the glory of God. None of it is done for the glory of Christ. Nobody, it's never done because of holy love for the brethren. It's always done in the context of humanitarian aid. It's always done in the context of trying to be a better person yourself. It's always done either for self-esteem or self-help. At the end of the day, it's done for self. You think it's selfless, but it's not because it's godless. And when it's godless, it's still selfless because it's, se it's rooted in self-righteousness. Only Christian theology would teach that we do this truly in a selfless way if we do it to the glory of God. Now, this moves on to the next point, and that is that their generosity was also rooted in sacrificial giving, sacrificial service. He says, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. The language here is very strong. He moves, right, from the lesser, if you would, from the lesser to the greater. He talks about, okay, what they're able to give. That makes sense. We can see that. We can all identify with that. This is what we're able to give. And beyond their ability, that's where we start getting a little sideways, right? Beyond their ability, that's right, they exceeded Paul's expectation. And then you know that they did it with the right motive because it says they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own accord. It was genuine. It was generous and it was genuine. 
They gave with the right spirit, the spirit that Paul is going to talk about in chapter 9, verse 7. It says, each one has to, uh, must do just as he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, no monetary manipulation needed. I don't got to get up here with props and a, and, a, and a fake brick wall. Or what are they doing nowadays? They're barometers. And trying to rah, 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 you know, and get you, hey, give. You got to give to this, you know, multi-million dollar building fund. No, no. No manipulation. No gimmickry. None of that. No spiels. It seems like these... Uh, these churches and even the Corinthians gave out of their own motivation. And that's what the word means here. They gave of their own accord. You know what that word means? It's, it's, it's a very rare word. It doesn't appear in the Septuagint. And it only appears right here in the whole New Testament. It literally means self-choice. Self-choice. It means that you, you needed no external pressure. If this originated with you. It just came to you. And then he explains to us how. How does this happen? How does this kind of radical giving, remember we're talking Gentiles giving to Jews in Christian love, how does it happen? Look at verses 4 and 5. Generosity is also therefore rooted in spiritual devotion or to get more puritanical, divine devotion, devotion to God. He says, they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. That's big language there. And to us, by the will of God. And so, again, more evidence that they saw that their giving was worship. Do you give yourself to the Lord in your giving? Are you giving yourself unto the Lord? What does that mean? They gave themselves to the Lord. Well, I would suggest that what it means is that they committed themselves to the cause of Christ. And uh, as a matter of fact, where that word is used for Lord, it is probably with reference to Christ because a great percentage of the times that you find the word kurios, Lord, with the article, oftentimes, more often than not, I should say, it is referring to Jesus Christ. They committed themselves afresh to Christ. They revived their devotion to Christ. And that's where it started. You know, that's where it starts, right? Before you are influenced by the pressure of man or even by the obligation that you have to men. You are obligated, for example, to support your leaders, to support your pastors. You're obligated to support the local church. But first of all, you have to give yourself to the Lord. You are first and foremost to say, I am God's and I am obligated to Him. What would God have me to do? What are my obligations before the Lord? And so I think a lot of prayer went into this financial gift. I don't think they did it haphazardly. I think they prayed about it. I think they sought the Lord about it. Maybe they even fasted. If you look at the 
pattern of the book of Acts, it seems that the early church would fast on big decisions. And I think for a, 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 an empire-wide collection for one church in Jerusalem, that's a huge effort. Who knows? They might have prayed. They might have fasted. Whatever they did, they fully committed themselves to Christ. They committed themselves to Him afresh. And then, and only then, because that's primary, right? Uh, John MacArthur says that that's what it means. It's primarily referring to uh, giving to Christ as in, in, in priority, not in time. It wasn't like he's talking about them getting saved. They were already saved, but they were making God their first priority. And then once that was taken care of, then they could devote themselves to the leadership of the church. Okay, Paul, we've decided that we're going to participate. We've decided that we want to give. We want to do this. What do we do? And that's why Paul says not only did they give themselves to the Lord first, but they also gave themselves to us by the will of God. In other words, it was ultimately God's will for them to participate. This was an expression of the will of God. They didn't have to doubt, is God in this? They knew this is God's will for them. And then look at the attitude, brothers and sisters. Don't miss out because this is what joy looks like in giving. They were begging us with much urging for two things. Two things. We just back up to verse 4 here. The favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now, I told you two things. Okay, and they said that's one. Well, interestingly enough, that is actually two. I don't know why, but the King James gets it right on this one. Everybody else gets it wrong. There is an and in there. So you're going to build a sermon around and? Yeah, a little bit. There's an and in there that we don't want to miss. It actually more, more literally could be translated like this. They were begging us with much urging for the grace and the fellowship of support for the saints. In other words, the Macedonians wanted to partake both of the grace, the blessing of being involved in this, and the fellowship that's involved in this. When you're surrounded by a group of people that are generous, guess what? You want to participate in the grace of that, and you want to be with those people. I've seen it. It's infectious. And that leads us to our last thing, that generosity creates Greater generosity, in other words, it's an infectious disease, a good disease, a disease that we need to catch in our own church. The, 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 this, this generosity should produce generosity in others. When you see that you're in a generous church, you ought to be generous. And can I say one thing? Since I've said so many things, I guess you won't begrudge me to say one more thing, but another ca a caveat if you would, okay? And that is this, that it's not just Money, right? It's fellowship. Notice, it also has to do with the blessings of being part of something, being part of one another, being part of a work. That's what he calls it. Look at verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. It's really literally this grace. This grace, this activity of grace, that's what he wanted them to be a part of. Now, this is what's interesting. Paul's reminding them of something, and this is hope for you and I. 
Look with me at chapter 8, verse 10, just a little bit down. This is a grace for you and I, brothers, because if you think, well, I'm not that type of person, or our church doesn't do that, or for me, I just don't know if we can generate this kind of generosity. Well, listen, you might have began, you might have faltered, but you could return again. You could revive this at any time in your own heart and hopefully in the life of the church. Because it seems like this whole thing was conceived first, not with the Macedonians, but with the Corinthians. He says, I gave my, he says, I give my own opinion on this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it? They were the first ones that conceived of doing this. They wanted to do this. And then something happened. Well, we know what happened. Chapters 1 through 7. All these problems in the church. All this stuff that inhibited their progress, inhibited their faith, inhibited their zeal to do this. And he talks about it again in chapter 9. One last, one last passage on that. He says in, uh, nine, in chapter 9, verse 2, he says, I know your readiness. See, they were ready. They were ready. They prepared. It didn't just happen Folks, you got to think about it. We got to be intentional. You got to think ahead, plan ahead. You got to allocate ahead. Do whatever you have to do. He says, They were readiness of which I boast about you to the Macedonians. Just when you thought the Macedonians were, they, they were it, they had it all together, there was a time when Paul boasted to the Macedonian churches about the Corinthians, namely that Achaia, whole other region, has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Isn't that amazing? The Corinthians, ironically, had an effect on Macedonia and on Achaia, so that all these church regions were ultimately stirred up by owing to the activity right here in Corinth, and something happened. They lost sight of everything, and all of a sudden, Paul is now here to revive that, to the revive in them all of the things that he wants them to do. Therefore, he sends Timothy. Therefore, he's got to send Timothy to them to hopefully to complete what he began, to bring it to an end. See that word there? He also would also, that he would also complete in you. That word complete is a special complete. You could say the word complete is telos. But if you, if you use the word epitelos, it means that there is an urgency to finish something that was already began. Something had already began. There was something that started that never came to a conclusion, never ended. It never was completed. It was never brought to its intended goal. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is what Titus is here to do. That's why Titus is Paul's emissary here. He's, he sent him on a mission, and the mission was to finish it. And dear brothers and sisters, that is the proof of the pudding, right? you got to Finish it. You got to finish it. You got to do it. You got to do whatever it takes to get it there. It's one thing, you know. Let's get. Let's, let's be honest, right? I had a, a friend of mine who's an investor. He does very well. And when I've talked to him about other people who've tried to invest and things like that, you know what he told me? He said, "Talk is cheap." You could talk about all these grand ideas that you have or plans or all these business ventures you want to do, but talk is cheap. The proof's in the pudding. 
you got to do it. you got to finish it. you got to bring it to its intended goal. And I think that's what he did here. And so you and I both, too, we can, too. We can learn from this example. Just like I said, it takes maturity, right? It's not condemnation. It's not, oh, look how terrible your giving is compared to their giving. No, there has to be a mature way in which it's set out, set forth. And there has to be a mature way in which you receive that imitation, that, that, that example, rather. To see a good and godly example and to want to emulate that, that's maturity. That's maturity. It's called discipleship. That's how all Christian ministry is done, is by taking someone alongside of you, is by mentoring someone. Here, even on an ecclesiastical scale, the whole church was mentored, in a way, by these Macedonians. And just like you and I in our own lives, we should be mentoring someone. Mentor your children, mentor your wife, mentor your household, mentor your people, brothers and sisters at church. The brethren who maybe are not as educated as you are, theologically educate them. How hard is it to get together at Starbucks, the office, the place where all significant Christian meeting goes down, right? Go to Starbucks and have a synod with somebody. Go have a meeting. Transform that place into the place where discipleship is happening, where you're meeting over the word, where you're pouring into somebody, where someone's pouring into you. Maybe it's in this area of finances. Maybe financially you don't know what you're doing. Maybe financially you need help. Because you just tried and tried and tried, and your finances just seem to always be a wreck. Well, find someone in the church who's financially responsible. Go out to coffee or something. Say, hey, man, how do you do that? Because I can't seem to get it right. And I want to be this. I want to be this. I want to be a blessing to others, a blessing to the church. How do I become a generous giver like this with true, genuine joy? Not at obligation or compulsion, but you do it as an act of worship. May the Lord give us such worship in our own church as we give to His kingdom. And whatever, however small it may be. You know, we've taken on a a missionary now, Joseph Urban. We're going to begin to financially, officially support him. We're going to be giving him, I don't know, whatever, however much we can afford to give him. And, uh, and, and, And would you, could you imagine if we just, all of a sudden, there's checks that just pop up and, okay, this is what Heritage Grace is giving, but, oh, somebody gave way beyond that. And he's calling me and emailing, hey, bro, I thought you were supporting me for this much. And so all of a sudden, this came in. What do I do with it? I say, enjoy it. Enjoy it as a blessing and as an offering to the Lord, well-pleasing to Him. See, those are the kind of things that we can do, you know. Even, even being here in this church, you guys, Water's Edge has blessed us with rent that's just ridiculous, okay, because I've looked, trust me, we are getting a deal that's just astronomical. What would it take for us to rally together and say, you know what, this month we're going to give double what we're supposed to give? Can you imagine what the people at Water's Edge would think of that? Wow, this is is a tenant we want to keep for a while, right? These are the kind of things, just get creative and think and pray and do what they did. Give yourself to the Lord, and see how he would have you to give and to bless his church and his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that as we consider all that you have given us, even as Paul, at the end of the day, when he finishes this whole section, he finishes it on a high point of the gospel, saying in essence, Lord, because of your indescribable gift, therefore we give. We give. 
because the gift of salvation, because of the gift of your son Jesus, because of the gift of the cross, because of the gift of eternal life, how can we not be generous givers ourselves? You are the God of all liberality. You give generously to all those that ask. Lord, make us generous people, even on a small scale. Blessing somebody by taking care of their meal. Blessing somebody by asking them what their needs are. Whatever it may be. Father, give us eyes to see. Lord, give us perception. Make us those types of people that are able to meet pressing needs in the lives of one another so that we could have something of the principle of Acts chapter 2 where no one was in need of anything. Give us that type of community, that type of church, that type of close-knit relationship with one another. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.